The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Now would you turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 14. We looked at Luke 14, the first 14 verses last week, and we saw Jesus confronting us about sins in our life. And Jesus was confronting us through them that uh, sometimes we love things and use people and we have a problem with pride. But beginning in verse uh, 15, he begins to talk about some other things and he ends up in the last section of this chapter speaking about the cost of discipleship. What is it going to cost you to follow Christ? And uh, let me read this passage first of all, beginning in verse 15. When one of those who were reclining at table with him, that is, was a a guest at this feast they were having at the Pharisee's home, one of the guests says, blessed is everyone who eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now that was a common blessing to Jews because the the Jewish people thought that they were going to be, they're the only ones who were going to be at this feast in the kingdom of God. And so he is saying something that they would all agree with except to Jesus. And then Jesus says to him, a man, he, he answers him with a parable. And you remember what parables are for? Parables are for communicating truth to those have, who has eye, have eyes to see and hiding the truth from those who don't. And so Jesus gives this parable. A man was, going, was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. Now this was the common way of doing it because nobody had watches back then let alone an Apple watch. They didn't even have a watch. And so uh, what they would do is they would put out invitations to people, and then on the day that it was going to be ready, they would go and say, it's time, come to this feast. But when they went to invite them that the, that the meal was ready, it says in verse 18, but they all alike are all together, all at the same time, begin to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Now, I would assume that you probably, if you buy a piece of land, you look at it first before you purchase it, right? But this was an excuse. I know none of you ever do this when you're invited to something, and they want an RSVP, you know, let us know if you're coming, and you come up with a lame excuse. You know, I think my dog's going to be sick that weekend. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. And I'm going to try them out. (laughs) I bought a car, so I'm going to go drive it. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. (laughs) Now, that was the only legitimate excuse, and here's why. (laughs) Only Only the men were invited to these feasts. That was typical. Now, let me explain to you what's going on. I'll read on, but let me explain to you what's going on here. This, what Jesus is doing is he is explaining to this man that this is why the entire nation of Israel is not going to be at this feast in the kingdom of God. It's because they all have lame excuses. Jesus has been going throughout the land preaching the gospel of the kingdom and calling people to himself. But they have rejected the call. John says in John chapter 1, he came into his own creation and his own people did not receive him. The nation rejected him as Messiah. And, but, it's, but John says, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. 
He goes on, and the slave came back and reported this to the master. Now, this is just a story, a parable, to illustrate the truth of what's going on here. The slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has already been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who, have, who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them. Now as they're moving along, a lot of people are following along with Jesus. Because Jesus has become very popular in the sense that everybody's heard about him, and they want to hear what he has to say. And then Jesus says this to the crowd who's following him. They're, making, they're acting as though they want to follow him. And so Jesus says to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yet, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's shocking, isn't it? Whoever does not carry his own cross, that is the implement of his death, and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, you would never pitch a uh, product in this way. You really need this, but you have to be ready to die because when you eat it, it's going to kill you. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? And everybody said, Amen. (laughs) Otherwise, when he has laid foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. That, that phrase means unless you are willing to say goodbye to everything you possess, you can't be his disciple. I'll explain why that's true in just a minute. Therefore, salt is good. Disciples are a great, great tool in the hand of God in this world. And so he's using this as, a, as an illustration of this. Salt is good, but even if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, what in the world is he getting at? Well, notice in verse 15, you have this naive remark of this Jewish man who said, yeah, it's going to be great. Everybody coming and eating at this, at this great feast in the kingdom. Um, Jesus responds with a parable, which we just read. As, a, as the day of the celebration approaches, and the celebration he's referring to, in this case, is a celebration in the kingdom of God. Now, if you remember, in fact, I think I'll have you turn back to Matthew just a second. If you turn to Matthew chapter 4, I want to show you, this, is, um, this has been the pattern of Jesus' message. In Matthew 4... Verse 23, it tells us that Jesus came. It says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, 
and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And this rest of the sentence explains to you the connection between what Jesus is doing and the kingdom of God. He says, in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom and he was demonstrating that he was the king of that kingdom by healing the sick and casting out demons. This happened over and over and over again. In fact, turn over, since you're in Matthew, turn over to chapter 9 of Matthew, chapter 24. I want to show you this pattern where Jesus goes out preaching the, the gospel of the kingdom because he's the king. The kingdom of God had drawn near them because Jesus had drawn near them. Now there's many things about the kingdom of God that we wouldn't have the time to even talk about. But the kingdom of God is a huge subject in the Bible. In one sense, in the broadest sense, the kingdom of God is the entire creation. God rules over his kingdom. Nothing in this universe is outside of his control. And he sends Jesus into the world. He sends his son into the world to proclaim the message of come to the kingdom. This is what Jesus keeps preaching. The gospel of the kingdom is come into the kingdom. And in this kingdom, there's going to be this great feast one day. It's called the marriage supper of the lamb. Uh, But here in chapter 24, I think I have the right verse here. It says in verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world. Now it's expanded. It isn't just the Jews are going to hear it, but the whole world. The kingdom The gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The king has come. He was rejected by his people, went back to the Father, but he promised us that the gospel was going to be preached. The gospel of the kingdom was going to be preached throughout the world, and then he's going to come back. The king is returning. The king is returning. And so when you believe in Christ, we're told in Colossians chapter 1 that you were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of his dear son. And we begin to experience the present form of the kingdom, that is the rule of Christ over our lives. The most blessed thing in all the world is to live under the rule of Christ in your life as a believer. There's nothing else that can compare with it. It's glorious to, to know that you have a Savior, a Lord, that you can submit to his will because he is not only, not only has the attribute of love, that he loves us profoundly, but he also has the attribute of omnipotence and omniscience. He knows all things and he has all power. And so we've been called to live under his rule because he's the only person you know personally and intimately that actually knows what he's talking about. There's all kinds of people that will tell you what you ought to do about circumstances. That doesn't mean they know what they're talking about, does it? I don't think so. The reason I know that is I've taken a lot of advice that turned out to be very, very poor advice. But we have a, we have a Savior, a Lord, a Master, under whose rule we live, and He actually is the omnis- omniscient, omnipotent God. And we, so we submit to His rule. Now, he gives this parable in order to illustrate to this man that the problem isn't that there's not a a great feast going to happen in the kingdom. The problem is that the people he came to invite into the kingdom of God have rejected it. And that's the purpose of this parable. John, uh, the apostle John says in the first chapter of John, he says, "There, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man, talking about the Lord Jesus. 
He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and it means his own creation, and those who were his own, his own people, the nation of Israel, did not receive him. That's how he, God used their rejection of Christ to bring about the atonement by which you are saved. But as many as received him, he gave to them the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is the characteristic of salvation in the new covenant. We, are, we become children of God. We're born again. He changes us. He does a deep, profound work in us. But in this parable, he shows how these, these men rejected the offer to enter into the kingdom. Jesus, by this time, now he's on his way back to Jerusalem. He has preached throughout Israel, and he's offered this invitation into the kingdom of God through faith in him. Here was the problem. They didn't believe in him. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. And you say, well, how in the world could that be? They saw him raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons. They saw him do supernatural things. How could they not believe that he was the Messiah? Can you imagine being there when he raised this man from the dead out of a casket? They were ready to go bury him, and he raised him from the dead. Can you imagine anybody looking at that and saying, oh, he's not the Messiah? Well, let me tell you, we are as unbelieving in many ways and many times we can be just as unbelieving of his promises. When we read the promises in Scripture of answered prayer, if we believe he will give us what we ask for, if we're abiding in him and his words are abiding in us, we, we have a really hard time believing that. If you've never read the autobiography of George Mueller, you ought to read it. It's a great, great story about a man who discovered that he could trust God and have faith in God, that God would meet his needs. Get this. He had a ministry to orphans. He had several homes that housed orphans, and he fed them and cared for them. And guess what? He never asked for any support. He was a poor man. The only support he asked for was from God. He never said to a man, is there any way that you could help us with this ministry? Do you think you could give something to help support this ministry? He didn't send out emails. (laughs) He didn't send out letters. He made no appeal. He just trusted God. He believed that if he asked God in faith, that God would provide for his needs. Is that radical or what? He simply asked the living God in the name of Jesus, to meet the needs for this ministry that he was doing. And he made no appeals whatsoever. And God supplied his needs in supernatural ways. And so, yes, these people rejected Jesus as the Messiah, even though they saw him do everything that only the Messiah could do. But there are sometimes when we lack faith, we are not believing about the promises in the word of God. Because we do 52 things before we ever think about doing what God said to do. Ask, and you'll receive. It's amazing, isn't it? We're not giants in faith. That's why I love Jack Miller's thing, cheer up, you're worse than you think. But God's grace is far greater than you ever imagined. He saved you by grace. He didn't save you because you've done really good. Because you're more righteous than you are unrighteous. He saved you because of the work of Jesus Christ and your simple faith in him. You put your confidence in him. 
Now the, the response of the host in verses 21 through 24 is illustrating God's response to the nation of Israel. It says here in verse 20 and 21 of uh, Luke 14, And the slave came back and reported this to the master. Then the head of the household became angry. And he said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes and the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Bring those in who nobody else would ask to come to a feast. Have you ever asked yourself, how in the world did I get into this kingdom of God? How did I possibly get into this place of salvation in Christ? Because that's the kind of people God draws. He's like us. They're like us. He drew us into this relationship with Christ. And the slave says, well, master, what you commanded has been done, and still there room, there's room. And the master said go to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that, they may, that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of these men who were invited should taste at my dinner. You get the message he's giving to Israel? Jesus has traveled throughout the the land of Israel for three years preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and there's been nothing but rejection except for a few. And so what happens? Well, they start turning to the Gentiles. Because not only did the Jews reject him when he was alive, but after he was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, they began to persecute his followers. Why did they do that? Because his followers were becoming just like he was. They were being conformed into his image. You know about the promise in in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. The promise in Romans 8, 29 is that all those that God set his love on, he has predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, don't get afraid of that word predestined. It simply means that God has determined how you are going to be conformed into the image of Christ. He's laid out a way to bring you there. And guess what's included in his plan? All those things you've gone through. Because he's at work conforming us into the image of Christ. He has a plan for you individually as a believer to conform you into the image of Christ. And so what he's telling them here is this is exactly how Jesus how the father has responded to the response of his people to his son. And so what's going to happen? Well, the gospel is going to go out. In fact, in the book of Acts, it tells us, you know, they kept preaching only to Jews, the apostles. They kept preaching just to Jews, trying to get them to turn to Christ. But finally, they turned to the Gentiles. And they began preaching to the Gentiles. In fact, the guys that first started openly preaching to the Gentiles, we don't even know who they were. They were it just tells us where they were from. But they were so naive, they began to go and preach the gospel to Gentiles like you and me and tell them about Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, who was rejected and crucified and buried. And then God raised him from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. I want to do something. I want us to turn to Romans chapter 11 just a second. Paul in Romans 9 through 11 deals with, hey, what's what's the deal? What happened? If God never violates his promises to people, if the gifts of God are irrevocable. 
fact, the text says, irrevocable are the calling and the gifts and callings of God. Then what about Israel? They got rejected. And so Paul is explaining what's going on. And so if you turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 11, he says, I say then, this is Paul writing, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall. That is the nation of Israel. They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, by their rejection of Christ, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's you and me. Salvation came to us because the nation of Israel rejected the Messiah. How did he, how did he die? How did he get to the cross? Well, the means that God used was the rejection of Israel. Now, they were doing what they wanted to do. But in the purpose and plan of God, he allowed the nation of Israel, his people, to reject him so that he could die for our sins. Verse 12 says, now, if, if their transgression, that is the nation of Israel, their transgression in denying Christ is the riches of the world, which it is. This is how the gospel came to us. And their failure is riches to the Gentiles. How much more will their fulfillment be? You see, in the future, the Bible very clearly says that God's going to restore Israel. He's going to call them back to himself, and they're going to turn to him. So he says, well, if their rejection brought this great gift to us now, what is it going to be like when they turn back to him? He says, well, it's going to be like a resurrection. It's going to be this, God's whole plan in this world is going to come to such fruition because not only are all these ragtag Gentiles come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but that his own people, the nation of Israel, is going to turn back to him. And we're going to be one people. It's amazing, isn't it? And so today, for example, if you go on, I hate to even mention this name, but if you go on YouTube and you uh, search for uh, One for Israel or I Met the Messiah, what you have there is a whole bunch of testimonies by Jewish people who have come to faith in Christ. There's a remnant. There always has been a remnant of Jews who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. But one of these days, there's going to be a great turning. And he says, if their rejection of Christ brought about salvation to us, that the gospel went out to the whole world, what's it going to be like when they turn back to Christ? And he said, it's going to be like being raised from the dead. This world's going to be in a brand new state of being because Christ is going to rule over the whole world. The kingdom of God is going to come to earth. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What would it be like for us to live in a world where God's will was being done as it is in heaven? What a worshiping community that's going to be. A worldwide worshiping community of believers. It's amazing. So what, what Jesus is doing here by telling this parable, he's telling them, this is how the father who has invited his people to come into the kingdom through his son, this is how he responded to their rejection, their excuses. He sent the gospel to the Gentiles. And I want to keep on saying this, that's us. How do you think the gospel could ever get to Knights in California? Now, that seems impossible, doesn't it? But God has sent people throughout this entire world to bring the gospel to the people of this world. And so when we preach the gospel, we are preaching the, we are preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We're preaching about the king of glory. 
We're preaching about the one who was rejected and died for our sins and rose again and is coming back one day. Now, in the next section of this passage, which I refer to as the cost of being a disciple, he explains what it will cost those who respond to the invitation and follow Jesus. And this seems like a really lousy way to advertise a product. You would never find anybody advertising their product online like this. And listen to these words again, beginning down in Romans 14, verse 25. Now, large crowds were going along with him. That is, they were, they were showing interest in what he was saying. They're following along, listening to what he's saying. So large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, (laughs) I'll guarantee you, you will never find this technique in Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. As they're going along, Jesus turns and says to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What? Why? What's going on here? You, you all are aware of the fact that we have been called to make disciples, right? We've been called to make disciples. That's the, per, that's the mission of the church is to make disciples. Now, a disciple is like, it's like an internship. It's like teaching somebody how to do something by doing it before their eyes. Discipleship is showing people how to walk with Christ. Now, it includes evangelism. And at the very beginning, the front end of discipleship is we share the gospel with people. We tell them about the Savior, about how they can come to have their sins forgiven and be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. But then we continue on with this process of discipleship and we begin to show them how to follow Christ, how to be like Christ, how to enjoy this trip of being conformed to the image of Christ. But here's the problem. When you become like Christ, people begin to treat you the same way they treated Christ, And this is really true. This happens all over the world. There are people who come to faith in Christ and they become rejected by their family, by their mother, father, sister, brother. So he said, if you don't come to the place where you are willing to be rejected and despised and put outside the inner circle, if you become my disciple, that's exactly what you're going to experience because you're going to become more and more like Jesus in character. And so Jesus says, hey, unless you hate your mother, father, sister, brother in your own life, in other words, you hate your own life because they might kill you. You know, they've killed a lot of Christians this past week, this past year, this past decade, this past century. A lot of people have been killed because they were followers of Christ. And so then in verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross, that is, be ready to die. Now, I know a lot of you think, wait a minute, I know a lot of Christians, nobody's suffering that I know of. Yeah, you're right, we are just, we happen to be in a little bubble right now. But most of the Christians around the world are experiencing exactly what Jesus said they would experience when they follow him. He says in verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? He's talking, you see what he's talking about? Can I really be a disciple of Jesus? What we're trying to do is tell people, it's easy, it's easy. There's nothing to it. You just believe in Jesus and you're a disciple. And you're lying to them. 
Because when you start following Jesus, your character is going to be changed. You're going to become, by, come, you're going to become somebody that a lot of your close friends don't like. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to turn on you. He says in verse 29, otherwise when he has laid the foundation, he's not able to finish it. If I don't count the cost, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. Saying, the man began to build and was not able to finish. Now what he's talking about here is a person who makes a start for Christ, but when he discovers how costly it is, he turns back. And so he's letting him know how costly it is. In verse 31, another illustration, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with his 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks him for terms of peace. You sure you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Are you up to people ridiculing you because you're a follower of Christ? You're a Jesus freak? All that means is, when the world uses that term, all they mean by it is, this guy actually believes this stuff. He actually believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for our sins. And so he says in verse 33, So then none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. What that expression means? Says goodbye to all his possessions. Why? It may cost you that. It may just cost you that. You may have a, a person may have a really great job that pays huge pay, salary. And he becomes a Christian, and all of a sudden, they want you out of the picture. Now, I could say to you, well, then stop talking about Jesus. How many of you could stop talking about Jesus? Don't raise your hand, please. (laughs) I hope none of you are like that. I hope all of you understand that I could never stop telling the truth about Jesus. That's what happens to Christians when they're conformed to the image of Christ. They can't help it. They don't have to, we don't have to be obnoxious. We understand that until the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of a person, they can't understand who Jesus is. And so we rely heavily upon the Spirit of God to work in the hearts of those to whom we speak about Jesus. There's not a person living on the face of the earth that I could talk into being become a follower of Jesus. But there, there is not a person on the earth that the Spirit of God could not open their eyes to the glory of Christ as we talk about him. In fact, he gives this illustration, verses 34 and 35. Therefore, salt is good. Remember, Jesus told them here that they were going to be the salt of the earth. Salt is used in regards to believers. This is what we're like in the world. He says, therefore, salt is good, but even if even salt has become tasteless. Now, you know that salt can't degrade. So what's he meaning? He means if it's been adulterated. They got their salt basically from the Dead Sea. But sometimes there were unscrupulous merchants who would mix other stuff with the salt and it diluted it. And so it didn't have the function that it was supposed to have. So he says, the salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, it is useless. Either for the soil or for the manure pile, it is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. A disciple of Jesus is only going to function in the way that God wants them to function if they truly follow Christ. Now, you were saved by grace, believer. 
You were saved totally by grace. It was a gift from God. He didn't save you because you turned into a good person. You never could. What he did was he saved you supernaturally based upon the work of Christ. So you have a perfect standing before him. But the only way that you could ever enjoy the Christian life, ever experience what the Christian life is all about, is if you come to what Jesus describes here as hating your own life in the sense that, oh, I'm willing to die for him. You know, there are believers all over the world. It's great to get exposed to them. You get exposed to somebody who's willing to die for Christ, and they really do mean it because it may cost them that. And so being a disciple of Jesus is a dangerous thing. That's what Jesus is saying. All these people are following him and says, wait a minute, you don't understand. If you become my disciple, you may have to hate your mother, father, sister, brother in your own life. Because you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. What does this mean, taking up your cross? It doesn't mean taking up your problems. Your cross is the implement of death. Are you willing to die? Are you willing to die for Christ? And you're thinking, wow, that's... I realize this, this is a way you would, never, you would never share the gospel with a friend of yours saying, oh, you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, let me tell you, I need to make something clear to you. You have to be willing to die. You have to say goodbye to everything you possess. You have to be willing to be hated by your mother, father, sister, and brother. How many takers would you get? Every single one that the Spirit of God convicts. Now, I know what happens to us. There are times in our Christian life when we drift away from that. But there's not a believer in the world who didn't start with that kind of faith in Christ. We can drift, but the problem with drifting in our commitment to Christ is the Father is very sensitive to this. He wants you to love his Son. He wants wants you to value his Son above all things. Has anybody ever asked you, what's the most important thing in your life? What would you say it was? The most important thing in your life, well... People have all kinds of answers to that. But let me tell you what's the most important thing in your life, believer. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's more important than your job. It's more important than your retirement program. It's more important than everything in life that you pursue is being a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that will thrill your heart and your soul, as Peter calls it, joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is, this is what he, it produces to follow Christ and be willing to literally lay down your life. And that's, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's telling them, you better count the cost. In Matthew 10, 24 and 25, Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're becoming like Jesus. Where's that going to get you? It's going to get you in a whole lot of trouble with a lot of people. Sometimes believers can't figure out why everybody doesn't love them. Well, I hope it's because you're like Jesus. Because you'd think, man, if I became like Jesus, everybody would love me. Uh Uh-uh. No. 
He says, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, that is Satan, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Yeah, they're going to malign you if you truly follow Christ. Now, if you get to where you can handle people in such a way that you don't, you don't incite their hatred because you just never mention the fact that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ in however, whatever way you put it, they'll leave you alone. But when they find out you are actually following Christ, that you make decisions based upon what the will of Christ is for your life, that's absolute craziness from their perspective. Luke 6.40, Jesus said, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he's been fully trained will be like his teacher. So we have some saints in this church who've been walking with Christ a long time. I'm going to have them stand and give their testimony. No, I'm not. Just kidding. <laughs> there are people in this church who've been following Christ for 40, 50, 60 years. Ask them. Ask them if it's been worth it to become a follower of Jesus and have people push them away. And in every case, they'll say, absolutely. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. You ever sing that? Let's sing it. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. There's three people singing. And he's just the same as his lovely name. That's the reason why I love him so. For Jesus is the sweetest name I know. If you were to sing that in front of people, they'd say, what in the world are you talking about? I'm talking about the fact that he's, he's glorious. I wouldn't trade him for anything. I wouldn't trade being a follower of Jesus for anything in all the world. Nothing. No, no possession. Nothing at all can compare with what it's like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, what, what's happening is, is that uh, back in John 1, John said, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not com- comprehend it. He was the true light that enlightens every man. What does that mean? It means that when people get close to Jesus, either, either in the life of a believer or somebody talking about Jesus, What's going to happen is they are going to be self-conscious because they're seeing themselves as they really are. This is why the Bible said that he being the true light in the world, people didn't want to come to the light because their deeds were evil. It was too exposing. And that's what's going to happen with people that are close to you if you actually start walking with Christ and following Christ, being a disciple of Christ. It says in John 7, verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, and he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Why were they seeking to kill him? Because he was who he was. He was Jesus, the true light that, enters, that comes into the world and enlightens every man. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of Booths was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, his own physical brothers, his half-brothers, they said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret. They're being very sarcastic. They became believers after he died and rose again. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For then, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. In other words, it isn't time for him to go to Jerusalem and die yet. 
He says to them, but your time is always opportune. They'll welcome you. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. It isn't time for him to go to the cross. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. And then a passage you're all really familiar with, John, John 3, 16, down, down through verse 21. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's why he came into the world the first time. The Jews wanted him to judge all the Gentiles. But he didn't come to judge. He came to save all those who would believe on him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. This is the judgment. That light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. See, what happens with a believer is they start becoming like Jesus. Now, if you're truly born again, you will start becoming like Jesus, and people are going to stop inviting you to parties. Jesus says in John eight forty one, you are doing the deeds of your father. He says this to the Pharisees, and they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. In other words, you're born of a, a Roman soldier. They thought he was a bastard child, an illegitimate baby. See, this is what may be required of you to follow Jesus. It's amazing. You can live any way you want in this world except be a follower of Jesus Christ and, not be, and be ridiculed. We will not ridicule anybody because of their lifestyle anymore in our culture. It's a dangerous thing to do that. And yet, it's open season on people who are serious about Jesus. And and you see, the whole point here is Jesus is just telling them, this is going to be life-changing if you follow me. It's going to be life-changing. You're going to be a person that most people don't want around. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to be experience that? This is what may be required of you to follow Jesus, and he wants you to know it. You must be ready to face this. That's why he says this. Now, the other side of it, of course, we could talk about the benefits of following Christ, and they're all, they're all glorious. He gives you peace. He gives you joy. He gives you satisfaction in life like nothing else can. But that only makes his enemies more angry. Makes Satan angry. Satan becomes your enemy and he wants to fill your heart with fear because you're believing in Christ. So the message of Jesus is really clear to us. If we want to follow him, we need to count the cost. I've never in my life uh, witnessed to somebody and said, now let me explain to you, first of all, This is going to really be a difficult life. People are going to turn on you. But that's what Jesus does. Now, you're not Jesus, so it probably wouldn't come out as good when you said it, or me. But this is exactly what he tells them. 
Now, you've got to understand, he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. He knows he's going to be rejected. See, all these things that he says you have to be willing to do in order to follow him is what he goes through. He's hated, and he's rejected, and he's spit upon, and he's beaten, and he's put on the cross. Why? Because he was who he was. And when you start becoming like him, you need to understand, yes, it's worth it. It's worth it. There's a book, if you haven't read it, you ought to read it. It's called The Insanity of God. And it's about a, a, a he was a, actually a professor at a Christian college and he went to Africa, went in Mogadishu, and uh, he wanted to get in there to preach the gospel. There were six Christians in that country when he went in. And uh, he went in there with a relief organization. He planted his family in a town, I think in Nairobi or somewhere, and then he goes in there to work. He says when he got there, there were six Christians. And he stayed there for about five or six years working and witnessing to his friends and stuff because you couldn't legally do it, but he did it with his friends. When he left, when he, what happened was the reason he had to leave, his son died. He got uh, asthma, had an asthma attack and died from it. And so he said when he left, there was like two Christians because they had killed the other ones. And this is why he wrote this book, because when he came back, he was so discouraged. He told his students he couldn't believe this. He went over there to give his life to Christ, and all it brought him was grief. And so what they suggested he do is to go and take a trip around the world and visit every major place where Christians are being persecuted and find out what they're like. So that's what he did. That's what the book's about, is about his travels to Russia, to to China and different places where Christians at that time were being heavily persecuted. And when he came home, what he, what he discovered there was, these are the most amazing Christians I've ever met in my life. The, mo- the most vibrant, happy, joyful Christians he had ever met who were being persecuted. Their lives were threatened. The, the Chinese pastors he met, it was a house church group, they, they snuck him into this, they went out in the country somewhere, nobody could see them, and they had this, like a convention of these house church pastors, and he was there, and he said every single one of them had spent time in prison for their witness for Christ. Every single one of them. You know how many pastors I know that have spent time in prison for witnessing for Christ? Zero. But that's what he saw. And he said the difference was amazing because these Christians were different than any Christians I ever met. They were absolutely full of joy, full of the peace of God. They had learned that they had to depend on God for the most basic needs of life. And so all they could do was pray for it. And he supplied. Isn't that amazing? Now, I'm not suggesting you move to China or Russia or somewhere where they're persecuting Christians. I'm just saying, you know, we have to be truthful with ourselves and say, do I really want Christ this much? I cannot tell you the piddling things that cause people to drift away from Christ that I have seen. It's one of the most amazing things in all of life. It's like the excuses that those men gave to the the householder when he invited them to dinner. I got to go look at a piece of land I bought. You know, I got to go do this. I got to go do that. I can't spend time with Christians. I can't study the word of God. I can't pray. I don't have time to do that. I have things that are really important. 
And he was so shocked. You can see one of his messages on YouTube. He speaks at uh, Liberty University at one of their chapels. And when you watch that, don't, don't get jealous of their building. It's amazing. This building is incredible. Thousands and thousands of kids. And he's telling them, he's telling these university students, these Christians I met are unlike any Christians I've ever met. The happiest, most joyful, most peaceful people I've ever met in my life. And they had to pay the ultimate price. So I think, well, God, I want to be that kind of person. Don't you? I'm not, but I want to be. I want to stop, I want to stop succumbing to selfishness in my life. Don't you? I want to stop succumbing to the piddling stuff that Satan throws at me. I want to be all in for Jesus Christ, don't you? That's what he's called us to. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the, the blessings of life. Not the ease, not the fact that we're consumers, but thank you for the peace of Christ. Thank you when I bow before you or when I sing praises to you, you fill my heart with joy. Thank you, Father, for being able to fellowship with believers and nobody's seeking to arrest us or drive us off. We thank you for these benefits. But, Lord, we don't want to become soft in our faith and our commitment to Christ. We pray that you would deepen our commitment, that we would see Christ as more valuable than everything else that we possess. Help us to say goodbye to them and say, I want to serve Christ regardless of the cost. I want to be faithful to Christ in the world that I live in. Please help us, Father. Encourage one another, we pray. We are grateful that we can appeal to the God of the universe for the needs in our lives, and we believe that you hear us. And so we thank you for hearing us. We thank you, Father, for your ability to do the impossible. And so that's why we ask you in Jesus' name. To this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.